0: Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Every January, there are commercials for the Super Bowl, which is very large. It's kind of the final game of America's version of football for the National Football League. And every year they have a competition with each other. And these commercials are extremely expensive to put on the airwaves. The companies pay millions of dollars for 30 seconds or a minute, and then they often will pay celebrities, endorsement fees, and things like that. And it's, Really become a way for brands to get more attention, and even though a lot of people aren't watching television in the way that they used to, kind of something that people look forward to. And often it's a good example of creativity and something that people can laugh about and share with their friends, etc. Social media and YouTube, all that. Well, this past year, I remember seeing a lot of commercials about crypto, and one of them, and there were a couple of interesting ones. One was with LeBron James and others but then there was one with Larry David if you're familiar with the show Curb Your Enthusiasm you know who I'm talking about and it was it was quite a clever commercial they traveled back in time or Larry David traveled back in time and he kind of pontificated about new inventions along the way so a wheel who needs a wheel a toilet why would you need a toilet A dishwasher? What? You know, those kind of things, right? All the way up until you get to crypto. And here he is being skeptical again and saying, crypto, what's that? Well, the whole point was, don't be like Larry, you know, Larry doesn't know a good thing when it happens, that kind of thing, right? And then the brand at the end was FTX. And FTX within that time, along with the rest of 2022, up until about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, maybe, was the second largest crypto exchange in the world. It was very well known. They purchased the naming rights for the Miami Heat Arena in Miami, Florida. They were the official crypto exchange for the Major League Baseball. uh, And all of the players had to wear patches with FTX's logo on it. The Golden State Warriors basketball team with Steph Curry as the star player, he had an individual endorsement and the Warriors did as well. I think they were the official crypto exchange for them as well. The list goes on and on. Tom Brady, so many different athletes and celebrities started to endorse this exchange. And because of that, a lot of people put their money there and stored their money there as if it was a bank. And you know, a lot of times when there's hype, that often means credibility. Up until about two weeks ago, and then some stories started to come out, ironically, on Twitter. It's just interesting how these two companies and, and their, I don't know how to say demise, but things are definitely happening very quickly at both of these companies, but they're intersecting in today's story. It all kind of came crumbling down. And by Saturday, when there was news, the Exchange falling, and then there was a hack, and then there was rumors of malware on the website. It was just crazy. I reached out to Stephen Sargent, who has been on Fraudology before, and I know he was a fan favorite when he stopped by the first time. I reached out and said, "Anyway, you'd be willing to come on this week's podcast and talk about this a little bit with me?" Because I think I have an understanding greater than the average person about blockchain and crypto, but certainly not as much understanding as Stephen, who's been on the crypto investigations and anti-money laundering side for several years. And he even worked for a crypto exchange prior to starting his own company. So I knew he'd be the right person. I also knew he would have some flexibility. And while I know some incredible people in the crypto world, a lot of them work for other exchanges or other companies within the orbit. And so I knew that their comps team probably wouldn't be super excited about me asking them to speak on this as news is breaking. So I'm so happy. And honestly, this conversation I had with Stephen was one of my favorites. Of course, I love every conversation I have, but in different ways. And in this one, I learned a lot. And it was just fascinating. There's so many intersections between pop culture and famous athletes and fire Festival and Elizabeth Holmes and weird. It's just It's crazy how it's all unfolding. And I will say before getting into this story, we recorded this on Tuesday morning. So we are aware that without quickly news is changing and happening, that maybe by the time you hear this on Thursday or Friday, there might be some new additional information. So be sure to look it up and look at this story. I think it's really fascinating and from a fraud angle, from a compliance angle, from governance from anti-money laundering all of it as well as I am almost positive that this is going to be a docudrama or a movie at some point not only because the author of the book Moneyball has been following the CEO for the last six months his timing seems to be really interesting when he chooses to follow people so I'm sure that will happen but this is kind of news as it happens which isn't always the case for this podcast but just a reminder of a little bit about who Stephen is and why he is the perfect person to have this conversation with. Stephen is the founder of Airdropped. They are a content creation and strategy company for crypto compliance and security companies within blockchain technology. Stephen also provides training and certifications in crypto and investigations. Uh, he also is an instructor at the Canadian Institute for Financial Crime Analysis in Toronto. So he knows a thing or two. He was previously the host of We Were On A Break podcast. Now it's on a break since March, but there's still some great previous episodes to listen to there. And I didn't have time to ask him if he's bringing that back, but I know he's been busy creating a podcast for Chain Analysis, one of the companies that he works with, so Definitely. If you have more crypto curiosity, go over there and check out that. You can look at his LinkedIn page for the information on that. I always will put, as always, I will include a link to Stephen's LinkedIn profile as well as his training and website information in the show notes. Previously to all of that, Stephen was, oh, in addition to being the previous host of We Are a Break, he was also the deputy manager of anti money laundering investigations and a consultant for crypto exchange Bitfinex. And he was also a manager of AML investigations and financial crime compliance for HSBC. We're going to get into so much about this FTX story, and we try not to jump around too much, but there is just so much to cover. It's insane how much has happened in the last two weeks. I'm sure I've said that like five times in the last, two. on Tuesday's podcast and this one, but I just can't get over it. And there's even more things that are I'm being messaged about on a regular basis right now that are not in the news, that aren't happening in the headlines, that are also important, so I will Keep you all updated as much as I can when I can. But today we're going to talk about FTX's role in crypto as the second largest crypto exchange in the world, how they made a huge splash in brand awareness and celebrity endorsements, what's happened within the company in the last two weeks, including how the founder went from a superstar CEO and he was worth over $16 billion on paper to one of crypto's you know, notorious antiheroes. And Kind of probably going to be, you know, cautionary tale in blockchain for quite a while. It's going to go from famous to infamous very quickly. We'll also cover the mysterious hack that the company claimed to have over last weekend, as well as malware on the website and all these things. And then we'll speculate a little bit. There's still a lot of pieces of this that are yet to be determined, but. Stephen also talks about how the fact that all of this happened on the blockchain is why we know so much. And that's a reason why he is so passionate about training new crypto investigators and talks a little bit about how other people can be trained in that as well and how there's such a need for that right now. Then he shares some of the fraud related impacts on FTX investors. And then we kind of pontificate a little bit about what this could and should mean for the future of crypto. So a lot to cover in a little over an hour, but you guys are going to be so wildly entertained. And I think this is you know, a little bit different of a podcast where we're really talking about something that's happening right now as we you know, speak and as it's developing. So I hope you like it. And I look forward to speaking with you more next week. Well, I am so excited to welcome back fan favorite, Stephen Sargent. Stephen, you are kind of my go-to when there's something in the news about crypto. And I don't know how to speak, there's been a couple things about crypto. So I'm so glad. Thank you for hopping on this call with me within like a day or two's notice. Welcome back to Fraudology.
1: Thanks so much. I love this show. I love the people on it. And you have a couple other good crypto people. So let's give them some credit. You have some really good crypto fanatic fraud people. It's, I'm great that I can bring some of my AML knowledge and my experience actually from working for our cryptos. Give some of my opinions, disclaimer, all opinions about this subject and some of my random thoughts because by the time we record this, I'm sure there'll be something else on Twitter that piques our interest
0: right? I know even though we're trying to do this as close to my editor's deadline as possible on Tuesday, once this comes on Thursday, no idea what else is going to happen because that's the kind of two weeks really we've had in tech, right? Every day is different. And you're 100% right. I know some incredible people in crypto and I actually reached out to Rob McCall last night, but I happened to know that a lot of them, I mean, not that you're not busy, but a lot of them are in full-time jobs and you know they have comms teams and things like that. And so they can't just hop on a call last minute. So that is one awesome thing about those of us who are free agents like yourself, where you don't need to check in with PR and you don't have to worry about the queue and everything else. You can just, so I really appreciate it. But also like me, you're someone who who looks at the entire industry right and what does this mean for the future and what can we learn about from these things that maybe we don't make the same mistakes next time though i feel like i don't know so we've we'll get into it. But it seems like there's a few things that this is similar to where I'm like, did we not learn anything from Elizabeth Holmes or Fire Festival? But apparently not. But I'd first love, before we dive into FTX and, and just what's happening in crypto in general, how are you and what have you been up to lately?
1: I'm actually really, really great. I was actually on TV yesterday in the national news station in Canada. So I'm super excited about that. Like, telling my mom to go watch TV. I actually don't have cable, so I never got to watch it myself. But I'm really enjoying things. I'm getting to produce content. I actually produced a podcast for a company by the name of Chainalysis, which is a big blockchain investigations company. It's one of the leading podcasts in the industry. And I get to work with other fun companies, usually in the crypto compliance or privacy or security sector, where I get help them with marketing and content creation. So it's been a fun and exciting entrepreneurial journey.
0: I'm so excited. It's been fun for me to to watch and, and give advice here or there, but I also pick your brain too. So it's always nice as entrepreneurs because sometimes it can feel like we're, there's good and bad things about not having coworkers, right? But it's nice to be able to pick your brain when we can. All right. Well, so then let's just dive in. You know, a lot of my listeners don't know a ton about crypto or they kind of do, but not as much. I feel like I probably know more than the average person, but not as much as a lot of people in tech. So I'd love to just kind of start high level, like what is or was I don't know, I guess it still is a company. What is FTX? And then we'll go into what all these headlines and what all these crazy LinkedIn posts over the last few days have been about.
1: (laughs) So FTX is essentially a crypto exchange. So I worked at a very similar crypto exchange. People deposit... Fiat funds and even cryptocurrency, they trade it for other tokens or cryptocurrency and they can withdraw it. And that's pretty much what they do. There were some other options there for trading or uh, some leveraged options and margin trading that they had there. But pretty much in simple terms for your audience. If you want to buy or sell cryptocurrency, you would just open up an account, which is fairly easy on companies like this. And there's several of these companies, Binance, Coinbase. These are all examples of cryptocurrency exchanges. But keeping in mind that they're centralized So, And you'll probably hear a term, not your keys, not your cheese, which means you don't have ownership of your private keys, meaning Uh, if you deposit crypto on the exchange, just like if you deposit money at the bank, the bank retains ownership. The bank is the one moving those funds around on your behalf, which is good from like an AML fraud point, because if I deposited $200,000 from the dark net market to an exchange like this, go to quickly withdraw it to launder the money. This exchange can actually stop that transaction. They can actually report it to law enforcement through suspicious activity reports with a local FIU. So it's great in that terms for stopping a list of activity that's a centralized exchange. Not so great if the exchange goes belly up because they have control of your funds and you have to request that the funds be removed. It's not as easy just withdrawing the funds similar to a bank. You have to request the the deposits and withdrawals. And that's a little bit frustrating in a situation like this where the exchange goes down and nobody has access to their funds without permission.
0: Well, yeah. And like you said, I mean, it is very similar to a bank. However, they're not FDIC insured. They're not backed up by a federal government, which has always been the kind of the Pro crypto argument as well is decentralized. I understand that. I mean, I remember reading about crypto back in like, I don't know, 2012, 2013. And I think I mentioned that the last time you were here, like, I really try hard not to say could have, should have, would have, like, should have just bought 200 bucks in Bitcoin back then. But I remember thinking like, why would you want that because of this kind of scenario, right? Like you're trusting a brand that when it's when you want to withdraw your money, they've got it because there's nobody else behind them. I'm saying, hey, if they don't have it, we've got it.
1: There's no funnier thing that everyone's screaming right now. The regulators, what they should do. And this is why <laughs> we need decentralization. And last year, when people were spending $2 and making $100,000 off a bunny year's picture with a cigar in its mouth, let's say NFTs, they weren't crying for regulation then. They weren't requesting companies to do proof of audits or proof of reserves. So it's, it's always funny. When rich people lose their money, there's always going to be <laughs> some negative effects. Including more pressure on regulations. And usually criminal activity is what the investigations are probably going to be in this FTX case.
0: Yeah. Well, and you bring up a point, not only were they not asking for regulators, they were saying we don't need regulation, we're good. But you know, you're right. There's not, I mean, we have a little sympathy for the rich people that are losing money. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people that Saw that, that saw, and we'll talk a lot more about this in just a couple minutes. But saw celebrities and other, you know, rich people talking about how much they really loved crypto and FTX in particular, and then they invested what little they had, and that's those are the people that I have compassion for I know you do too so not only were they the number two exchange in all of crypto I think a lot of people would remember them in other ways how did they make a splash because obviously a smaller entity coming on that nobody had heard of before you got to get the name out so how did they do that
1: So they started out, they had Super Bowl ads. They bought the naming rights to the Miami Heat arena. They had celebrities endorsing Giselle and Tom Brady. And that's really usually a recipe for one of two things. Really, really great promotional events or usually the biggest frauds or Ponzi schemes around the world. Look at 1MDB, look at what happened with 1Coin, which is also crypto. Once you get the celebrities involved, it's usually either a really, really great sign that you were able to afford the celebrities or a really, really bad sign that they got duped into promoting this. And I think what's most difficult about this, when Kim Kardashian promotes a cryptocurrency or NFT, I think people have to use a little bit more Common sense that that's not her strength in business, right? If right. she's promoting skincare, clothing, okay, like that's her bread and butter, right? Like comedy or content, like that's what I would pay Kim Kardashian for. The problem with FDX is you have Tom Brady, who's obviously a really great football player, but also has that entrepreneurial side to him. You have people like Kevin O'Leary saying he trusts his money. Now, Kevin O'Leary is one of the most notorious businessmen in the world, and he goes on podcast after podcast, and I'm not knocking him, but he goes on podcast after podcast stressing the importance of compliance and having the right records straight. And that's only when there's compliance, he's going to enter into this industry. And then when he does and he starts promoting companies, I think a a part of even me is like, hey, have to bet on Kevin. He knows more than me, and he was waiting. It's not like he just jumped in and said, "Hey, let's all make a bunch of money." So I, he's probably one of the ones screaming the most about the regulations at this time. Because, but what I've learned and what I've heard, and probably you've heard too, about Silicon Valley is like you could probably get away with a lot more fraud than you think with a lot of these startup companies mm-hmm. because companies just aren't doing that due diligence. It's similar to very much the NFT market, right? They put up a picture and you have like two minutes to decide if you want to buy it and everyone's buying it at the same time and the price is going up as we speak and you you don't have time to do your due diligence. You have to you have to take a bet. A calculated guess is like, is this project going to go up? And I know that's what essentially VC is, but I think with FTX being so strong, it's, it felt like much more of a safer bet. You can't help that people got duped by this. And this is what is so catastrophic. I think, for the crypto industry with Einstein and other Canadian exchanges, Podriga CX as well. It's like, okay, they were doing a lot of shifty things, sending people cash versus wire. Like, They're doing a lot of shifty things that you could draw a lot more conclusions to but FDX look pretty solid to be quite honest.
0: Well, yeah, it's that herd mentality, right? Like if, well, if they're doing it and they're on TV or whatever else, I mean, it's similar to like Fire Festival, right? Like where we saw you know, Ja Rule and Kendall Jenner and all these Instagram models, which I'm too old to care about those things, but people I, maybe a decade or two beneath me weren't and that matters. You think, wow, they must do their due diligence. They must, no. I mean, that's the, I was telling you before we recorded, I mean, I am like the teeniest, tiniest of little like influencer in a very small space. But even with me, the companies that we choose to be sponsors for the podcast, like we're Sion has been amazing in sponsoring the second half of 2022. And we're now talking to new sponsors for 2023. And it's not to me, it's important for the feeding factor to not just be does your check clear. I've worked for organizations where that was it. And I've seen what's happened. And to me, the most important thing in the world is people's trust. So it's frustrating to me to see these big people who don't need that money half as much to just, you know, yeah, trust me, I know what I'm doing and all that. So I, I'm with you on that. But I think one thing to know is it wasn't just a Super Bowl ad. It was like the Super Bowl ad. And I didn't realize that till I was looking it up yesterday. You know, if anyone watched the Super Bowl of 2022, they remember the Larry David commercial where he was uh, time traveling, right? And he was like, the toilet? Why would anyone want a toilet? A dishwasher? Why did anyone want a dishwasher? A Sony Walkman? That's crazy. Whatever. I have a horrible Larry David voice, obviously. But And and then it comes to crypto and it's like, oh, I basically, you don't want to be left behind, right? Just like what you're saying. It's that sense of urgency. Same stuff that scammers do when they call you too, by the way. It's complete social engineering. You don't want to miss out. You don't want to have the FOMO. And now I know there's a lot of memes going around that Larry David was right, but only in hindsight do you know that.
1: It's it's one of those things. And yeah, they spend a ton of like, when you think of like Steph and... Tom, it's like these are the, the people at the pinnacle of their careers. These aren't like Jose Canseco or like washed-up players that you know maybe have a little asterisk beside their name. These are people still performing at the, the highest of level. But it, it, it almost calls into questions like, I've worked at crypto exchanges, although I don't know all the behind the scenes of profit and losses. It's like a lot of their funds are coming from transaction fees, maybe me some premium products and services that they offer. Like, Are they really making that much? Like They're saying they're making like eight figures a day, which seems reasonable. But when you look around, it's like, well, how much are they spending? It it, it just seems like you're taking over a hundred million for an arena name and God knows how much you have to pay Steph Curry, the prime of his career, for him to do everything for you. So it's like, and then all the philanthropy work, like, It just seemed like nobody was counting the money. At some point, there was so much money going around that I think people stopped counting, to be quite honest.
0: Well, and you're absolutely right. And I want to zone in on that in just a second, or for a little bit more, because payment processors are a big thing in my world for e-commerce, right? And so if we think of a crypto exchange like that, the way they're making money is the pennies on the dollar, right? Right. If we look at Stripe or Square, they're pushing billions of dollars through their network, but they're making millions because their take-home is only those pennies. And so when you're starting to do the math and you're like, huh, are they really making that much in the pennies or are they starting to rob the cookie jar? And I think to your point, like after a while, when so there's so much flash, you kind of stop adding it up and think, well, they must be able to do it. They've probably got uh, auditors and they probably have controllers and they probably have governance and they probably have these things. But again, that's where the, the R word comes in with regulation.
1: And I think how they get away with it too is like, you have to remember like early this year, they bailed out a couple of companies I believe it was Blockify and uh, Voyager. And you know, one of the sentiments that SPF had was all these other companies are running so bad. We're so lean. We don't need all these middle managers. And I might be paraphrasing, but that was the kind of sentiment you got from them. Like we're running super lean. All these other companies are silly. They're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars doing this and this, but we're running super lean. And now you see like, okay, like that wasn't, so it made sense. Like, okay, they're running a lot leaner than some of the other companies. And anyone that's worked in an organization like yeah we could probably get rid of 30 percent of the people here and probably still make it so they're probably like yeah like this guy's a savvy businessman he's a warren buffett of his and it's like yeah it's easier when you're bailing out other companies like nobody's going to suggest that you can't afford it you just bailed out two companies you just bought another (laughs) hundred they were involved in almost a hundred deals whether it was investing a company or purchasing companies even a canadian exchange by the name of bitmo wow
0: and they also reinvested into some of the vc funds too right like some of the VCs that invested in them, then they reinvested. So that would just make the VCs not want to question anything because, well, they must have it because they just reinvested in us and they're making us more money.
1: I think a lot of the reports were like, hey, they weren't giving, a lot of these VCs Like, felt that there was red flags, not like, oh, there's something wrong here, but they, they didn't meet their requirements or whether it was their their investing requirements. So they didn't give them the proper documentation. They are kind of just like, hey, like this is what we're going to give you take it or leave it do you want in or not and they kind of had that mentality and a lot of vcs didn't participate in that whereas some of the other vcs most notably did participate maybe even beyond the scope of looking at maybe all the due diligence and they had to go to scope with their gut but we've seen with terra luna ftx celsius like you just can't do that right you can't do that in an industry that's so volatile from what it seems
0: A hundred percent. And I listened to another podcast this morning that was saying, this is totally hearsay. The host had talked to a firm that had passed and they had said that the founder, SBF, who will talk before going into the timeline of the last 10 days, but he had reached out to this large investment firm after Sequoia being invested in them. And Sequoia does have such a good brand name and is an investor of a lot of the companies that listen to this podcast and a lot of them that we all know and has a really good reputation. And again, whenever you put your name or your company name with someone else, to me, it's just a no-brainer to do due diligence. Again, then, then again, I've been risk adverse for my entire career because that's my career path. So maybe it comes more naturally to me, but they were saying that, you know, he had reached out to them in March asking for a multi-million dollar investment and the investment firm just said, yeah, you know, let us know, send us your audited financials. And the CEO said, no, 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 no. like we don't have those. I'll just send you a Telegram message with some of the bullet points of what we have. And because that investment firm had governance and had policies, they may have wanted to break those, but they knew that they couldn't for their own investors. So they had to pass. And at the time, they were probably kicking themselves. But now they're probably doing a victory lap.
1: Yeah, like you turn into a hero, right? It's like when you call bluff bluffing poker, right? Like unbelievable odds. But you know what's funny when what you hear like this is how crazy I think the world of crypto and investment and VC mm-hmm. funding is. Is I believe SBF, what I've heard is that he was asking after the Binance deal went sour, or even maybe before or during, he was still asking for billions of dollars to cover the liquidity crunch. So and if he last got week. that, right? If he got that money, we probably wouldn't see any of this, right? It would be like, oh, they raised funds. Oh, they're just because then you could just call it a liquidity crunch. You right. Win- yeah, and you, yeah, you could call it a liquidity crunch, dialing the market. He's a bad guy. You could paint the picture any way you wanted to. But when that even crazier is like after they've dissolved, I still hear him and his team are asking for more capital. Like the story is just unbelievable. And like after that guy from WeWork raised money, like you'd have to think like people are still going to bet on this guy. It's mm-hmm. insane that people will still probably bet on him just for even just for namesake or to get themselves in the news alone.
0: It's the myth, right? It's like you'd rather believe in the myth than the truth, right? You'd rather believe in the legend than the truth. And going back to something you said just a few minutes ago, you know, about how one of the things they were bragging about was that they didn't have a lot of extra costs that other companies had because they had so many employees, right? And for FTX, it was a lean company with they didn't have any of the extra headcount. But it also becomes a problem when some of that extra headcount is board members who maybe have experience in business or someone with auditing control or anything like that. It seems like it was just one guy, this CEO, Sam. I mean, I just know him by SBF. So you'll share that with me in just a second. And then, and a few of his friends, and they all lived in the same penthouse. Is that right?
1: From what I heard, yeah. And it's funny because he kind of gave off this image as like the working class, you know, Um, man, like a Toyota Corolla. Meanwhile, he has like a $30 million mansion that everyone's kind of sucking at the tea that Bahamas, 200, I think they said $200 million worth of property in Bahamas, which makes sense because we talked about before the show. This was kind of like the Simpsons episode of the monorail. And we're all wondering, like, where's Marge? Where was the reasonable voice here? Cause he like, it probably sold the entire, you know, my parents are West Indian. So I'm very much, very, empathetic to the Caribbean people mm. because they're bringing digital assets here. They're creating a new ecosystem, the jobs, the revenue, the opportunity to be part of the international scene. And when this evaporates, you leave such a crater, just like the monorail did in the Simpsons episodes. Everything breaks down. Nobody's going back to save, like people will still go and in, invest in SPF. Nobody's going back to save Bahamas. And this is where that fire festival really came in, right? When you watch mm-hmm. a documentary and the locals have to pay their people because they still live there, right? Right, uh, job rule goes back to his mansion in LA or wherever. And the oh. other guy maybe goes to jail, takes a nap in jail for 11 months. And he's out probably running another or for one of that birds. it's those people that are on the ground, the people that have the security, the food, those are the people that are going to get most affected by this. And yeah. when you see a new technology and you have, and I know so many compliance professionals in Bahamas, they come off this huge conference. Like just imagine the defeat that is when you wake up the next morning, like, uh, yeah, you guys have no jobs. There's probably not going to be any further companies coming to invest in our in the Caribbean and hopefully they will be but let's face it I don't think anybody's rushing there now especially in the middle of crypto winter to build mm. what he built so that's where I think it's empathetic I'm very empathetic to them it's an yeah. unfortunate situation
0: me too so yeah and I want to talk a little bit about more about that After we kind of talk about the last 10 days, right? So Sam Fried is his full name. SBF, he's the founder of FTX. He had, it seems like three or four other guys that kind of all lived in this penthouse that is currently as of yesterday for sale for $40 million, a penthouse in the Bahamas. And he's trying to liquidate a lot of things. But so just kind of going back if people are like, "Well, then what happened exactly?" I think the first thing, I mean, this really started like literally a couple of weeks ago, right? I think the first date I saw was November 2nd. Am I right about that?
1: The dates I have a little bit I think it's like yeah, the, around the the November 2nd or 3rd. And I think where it all started was actually Coindesk. I believe it was Coindesk. was actually received or was able to get access to a leaked financial document, not from FTX, but actually their sister company. I say that with contagions because we don't know the exact relationship there. But the sister company, Alameda Research. And what it showed is that the the balance sheets that they had weren't that strong. And not only that it wasn't that strong, but a lot of what made up the assets were of basically a make-believe coin that FTX created a token called FTX token that they they created. So imagine you make up your own coin and because the whole business is doing well, the price is inflated and people are, and it was a liquid coin because they own most of this coin. So it's not like it was trading like Bitcoin or Ethereum on open markets. They had the majority of it. The only other person that had a lot of it was a CEO of Binance, CZ. So when CZ finds out about maybe Alameda research is not doing so great. And it's like, if, you're, if Warren Buffett's your brother and someone sees that you're homeless, you would expect Warren Buffett's gonna come save you and put you know, put you in like so when Warren Buffett doesn't come do that, you're starting to question well, how much money does Warren Buffett really have if no, he can't no. help out his own brother? And I think that was the kind of sentiment they got is like FTX was so strong, they would be able to just squash this situation the same way they rescued those other companies. They could do this lickety split. It shouldn't be a problem. And I think when FTX didn't come through that quickly, the CEO of Binance is like, hey, I'm going to sell these tokens that they acquired as some part of early investment. So they actually invested in FTX back in, I think, 2019. After what seemed to be of a sour relationship, they were bought out and they got a lot of these tokens, which are essentially, these tokens were only supposed to use for like transaction or trading fees. It's pretty much the equivalent of a a skin at Fortnite. You're not going to be able to use that skin at Call of Duty or any other games. It's only really the great thing game.
0: Cool. Um, That's a really so good, when, very good way of explaining it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so when CZ says he's going to put these up for sale, he says he's going to do it gently, right? You drop this man, I think he had like, I forgot how much billion, I think two billion worth of tokens you drop that much the whole market price is going to take a dive right just cuz of the sheer pressure of it so he says he's going to drop it gently right maybe gently and what happens is the Alameda research ceo Caroline Ellison she says hey like we're strong don't let nobody tell you wrong we'll buy those tokens at the price it is $22 but like there was no movement to do that so I think what happened is people started to believe CZ and said, hey, if CZ's getting rid of these tokens, we're going to get rid of the tokens too. And it started to drop the price significantly, like 10, 15 to 20% in the first couple of hours or first couple of days. But due to the price of the dropping token and everyone looking to remove their funds, not only from TX, but getting out of the FTT token, actually what's called a bank run, right? If everyone goes to the bank right now and asks to withdraw their funds, the bank is not going to have enough money to cover all these this withdrawals. But that's the same thing what happened to FDX. They went to the FDX and said, you know, you're not doing so well. We're just going to take our money just in case. You're good. But just right. in case, if everything's good, we'll put back our, we'll, we'll send our money back to you. But they, they removed it. And basically at the end of the day, FDX, although they said everything is fine, don't worry. At the end of the day, they did not have the amount of money to cover it and then they were in such a buy- bad financial situation Binance offered to buy them or entered into an agreement to buy them after they looked at the financials and the fact that when Binance looked at the financials they said they couldn't even save FTX everyone knew that things were going down badly because if the biggest exchange in the world couldn't take take over its competitor which is like to me, a a bad pass move, right? If you could buy on your competitor, and now you've formed almost a monopoly of exchanges, I think you would do that if the price was right. And then what we've come to learn is that it seemed that FTX was using a lot of its money and sending a a lot of its customers, they're using their customers money to invest with Alameda Research, which was a high risk trading. That's what they do is quant trading, high risk trading. Mm. And unfortunately, they didn't do so well trading. So that money pretty much evaporated. And then After a few days of saying that the customer's funds were okay and the withdrawals will be processed, they filed for bankruptcy. And that was pretty much the end of that. It was literally like like in three
0: days. Oh, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And we can, no, I was going to say, we could talk about some of the fun, not funny, but some of the fraud stories yeah. that are related to that. And to make matters worse, just as they filed bankruptcy, you get <laughs> a pig on Twitter that says, oh yeah, to make matters worse, customers, you may or may not get your money back. But just in case you thought you were getting your money back, oh, by the way, the exchange just got hacked for $600 million. But not just FTX, FTX and FTX US, which gives a huge amount of suspicion that's an inside job. Because mm-hmm. one. Like essentially they should be two separate entities operating with two separate cold wallets systems. We all know that this is the stuff that we won't see until after the smoke clears. You won't know exactly how much it was connected, but it's definitely highly suspicious that this hack happened. I do think, like, you know, as maybe bankruptcy trustees and other people are coming in, securing the private keys and stuff that could happen. But it seems like this happened way before that kind of exchange of ownership and people coming in.
0: Yeah. So, wow, you did such a good job of explaining that. <laughs> I want to go back just on a couple of things first before diving into the hack and after that. Because, and that was really when I was like, wait, this is now getting on my radar even more with the mm-hmm. hack and the fraud afterwards and the malware and all that other stuff. But just up until that point, you explained, me to research, and that that was really their sister company in quotation marks, right? And they were supposed to be separate entities, right? And the understanding of people outside was that they each had a shit ton of money to themselves, right? They were separate exactly. accounts, separate. But when all of this flurry of information and exchange on Twitter and all the craziness, which again, I mean, side note, all of this is happening on Twitter. (laughs) Well, Twitter is also having its own meltdown and craziness, which I just (laughs) talked about on Tuesday. So it's, you can't help but wonder, well, gosh, if Twitter goes away, then what's going to happen with how are people going to get all this information out on crypto? Now, yes, there's Telegram, there's Discord, there's other things, but will it be the same? That's, a whole other topic. But, so I'll just like parking lot that. But basically, Alameda and FTX were just like, like, kind of related, but they were separate bank accounts for all intents and purposes. Intents purposes. Yeah. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So, what is Sardine? I mean other than a small oily fish in the herring family. Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs, as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you, benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other people business models. For some clients, they use sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. what they figured out or what has come to light is that Alameda was basically guaranteed behind the scenes. They were funded or guaranteed by FTTs, which are FTX's in-game currency, so to speak. And FTX was leveraging Alameda research for their money. So they were each kind of saying, oh, well, I can pay for this because the other company has All right. So as far as Alameda Research and FTX and all that with their relationships, can you explain a little bit about at least from what we know now? Because I know that they both were representing as if they had a lot of money in the bank, so to speak. And what does it appear was actually happening?
1: So what it seems like, and you know, I'm not an expert when it comes to market makers and trading, but what it seems like is basically Alameda Research was getting loans from FTX. And instead of FTX sending them profits, they were basically sending them, they were sending them customer funds to Alameda Research, which was then then again using that as collateral and the FTT token as to collateral to get real world assets. And remember, collateral token is an in-game token. Let's just face it. Only people claim playing that game was FTX and Alameda Research. So it's, that token's never going to be worth anything outside of the ecosystem. And I think that's what originally how this spurred is like, hey, if Alameda Research is being held up by FTT token and FTT token is made up FTX, Alameda Research doesn't really have anything backing it. There's no real assets backing it. It's like only their own kind of made up printed money money, uh, token. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly they can print how much ever the supply of inside a dollar. They can print how much ever. I think once people realize it, they're like, oh, like they have no money. But then I think the biggest report is that basically they're saying that Sam was able to create some kind of backdoor because you can't just send 10 billion dollars to a sister company or any company without internal teams being able to catch that. Now I worked in AML, not so much. We wouldn't see those big internal transactions, but there are teams that do specialize in internal transactions. To me, like $10 billion leaving any kind of an account would would raise red flags. And they're saying he was able to craft some kind of solution, internal solution that was able to move those funds out without anybody knowing. And that's why when we talk about things like proof of reserves and auditable financial statements, I think they still probably would have been able to kind of escape probably be able to kind of work their way around those with doctor documents, but we have no way of knowing but basically, they were using customer funds and sending it to their, a high, a high risk trading platform like Alameda Research, which is never a good idea, especially when the market takes a downturn. If those trades don't work out, you pretty much lost your customers' funds. And when then, when you see them asking for more money from investors, now all of a sudden, you probably know this world as much as I do. It sounds pretty much like a Ponzi scheme because what they would do is the exact same thing: use those new investment funds to send probably to Alameda Research to prop them up. And there's so many stories about Alameda Research and why they're paying off certain companies and even more so, why did, with so many companies going down, why did SPF and FTX save Voyager and save BlockFi and I guess... The reality is, is that most likely those companies are more interconnected than you think. And if those companies went down, it may have showed a little bit more chinks in the armor of FTX because they were associated with those companies. So by buying them and propping them up and bringing them under your kind of balance sheets, you might be able to hide some of those. Those are just assumptions, but it makes a lot of sense that this company was interconnected with so much of the ecosystem. And that's why everyone's feeling such a big hit from it
0: it's really chasing, you know, good money after bad, right? And we've seen that with Madoff. I mean, Ponzi scheme, of course, right. And other things as well, where you get into, I I also really like pop culture and law and all of that. And there's a real housewife from Beverly Hills, whose husband did the same thing over in California as a Mm -hmm. lawyer. And he used his clients' funds that they won from plane crashes and these really big, horrible things that happened to them. Instead of them getting paid, he used that money to fund his private plane and all of that. And then he'd keep taking on more clients and more clients and same kind of thing, right? At a certain point. And it was okay until COVID hit and until a couple of bills came and until there was one lawsuit that came out that he couldn't pay off quickly, like he could all the rest. And then that all came down like a pile of dominoes. And it's almost exactly the way this has happened as well so quickly. But what you're saying too is Alameda Research, they invested in hundreds of different high risk coins and other businesses and things like that. So there's just the tentacles are so high, we don't yet know all the impact.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit like this guy, you know, like, I didn't really know him that much. But like, obviously, he's popular in the industry. And you have to kind of rate his like origin story. He was doing like Trading between two countries, so be, like because there was an arbitrage back in the day of Bitcoin, so it was worth like let's just say one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever fifteen thousand dollars in Japan and only worth ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars in US. So he would like take you buy the ten thousand, run it over to Japan, make the profit, come back going That's how he made his millions. So he was like a hustler mentality. So it's a great story to kind of fall behind. Mm-hmm. But then you kind of see some of the things that are going on, and you're like a lot of the activity, and then kind of like playing it off it's like oh we just did a couple bad trades. Like no, you don't use customer funds (laughs) and then say oh we just made a a couple bad investments and he's kind of playing it off this like nonchalant way which i feel like is stinging people it's just like that kind of like you. You put this person up on the pedestal. We have to take responsibility yeah. of that. The conferences were making money when he came to be a speaker. Everybody's making money because he's financing jobs. He's buying companies. He's saving people jobs. And all he was really doing was buying time. Yeah. When you really think about it, he wasn't doing it more than just buying time. And to be quite honest, if he could have made another two years, we probably wouldn't have heard anything because if the market goes back up, he's laughing. At some point, he's probably doing somewhat of laughing, uh, I would think, at some point.
0: Well, and I think too, I mean, there's something to be said about crypto in the last year, right? There were so many people, you were mentioning it a little little bit ago too, where You know, in 2019, you know, and even in 2020 and 2021, especially, right? NFTs, you could buy an NFT for two bucks and turn it around for six figures and all these crazy, you know, I had Matt Vega on from Candy Digital and he was, we talked about that. I know you love that episode. And Matt is a good friend. I mean, I actually need to, I've been meaning to text him for the last couple of days, but life's been busy. But yeah, you know, it, it was the high road, right? So I think a lot of people thought that that was normal and they got used to that. And so when the crypto winter, in quotation marks, came and started to go down, well then people thought oh it's going to go back up again like because we're used this is just this is a blip on the right this isn't normal this is the good life normal is nothing but upside this is just a minute so i'm sure there were probably some thoughts where oh well once you know the value of these coins go up then we'll be fine right there's always that well we'll just kind of float this we'll use our customer money over here a little bit but then the value is going to go up and everything's going to be good
1: And it's that laser eyes mentality that the crypto industry had, Mm -hmm. right? You see the laser eyes on Twitter. It's like everyone laser eyes laser eyes until we hit 100,000. I think that 100,000, really people believed it. So if you're sitting at 67,000, if you're at 40,000, you're like, hey, there's room to grow here. We might be down right now. But if the assets that we have go up or 2X or 3X, we're laughing, but you need time for that to happen. And the crypto market is just like, we've seen it before. I've been in this market since 2018, actively working. And yeah, I just think that people, they, they get careless, right? And I have a little bit of empathy that to build a big business like that when millions of dollars, like I have trouble like doing the administrative work for four or five clients. So I can only imagine when you have all these corporations and these people and that people. But what you realize, and I think the point you made, I don't think they had really any affluent people in those positions that had the ton of business experience and i at the end of the day now you know why right you don't want to put the smart people in the place that are going to ask questions mm. just put a bunch of your friends in the penthouse you know have a little sleepover which is what it seems they were having and they're not going to ask questions like what's a 30 year old out of mit going to ask when somebody just gives her 10 billion dollars like for me i'm gonna i ain't asking nothing that's what i mean <laughs> i'm barking my pina colada and my bum on the beach and i'm going to take a nap is what i'm going to do so i'm empathetic that hey like A lot of us are say, oh, look at this and look at that and greedy. But like we got a little $200 check in the mail from the government and we're laughing. And I think that's what happened. There was a lot of money in the system during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The government was pretty much shoveling people money. People were getting paid more to stay at home than they ever had to work. And that, was, that felt like a lot of disposable income. And you see things like NFTs and crypto and you got disposable income, especially when it ain't yours. You try and double, triple, quadruple that money. I think we all just got kind of caught with our hand in the cookie jar. I don't say like that to be like laughing at the situation, but I think with the downturn of the market we're seeing, like we could have done, could have just been a little bit more responsible and not just him not just their companies we were propping him up we were making him seem like he was going to be the next bitcoin or crypto savior mm-hmm. and we should have been asking a few more questions
0: well yeah what what goes up needs to come down right and i think that's what a lot of people are realizing now and But it it stinks when it's people who don't have those millions, right? Or don't have the friends with millions or don't have this cell phone numbers to the CEO of a VC and oh, they're just a piggy bank, they can write it off or whatever else. I mean, the people at the top, the people who are in the headlines right now, the truth is they'll probably be okay. I mean, might go to jail. But I mean they'll probably be fine because they might feel like, oh, I went from being valued. I know that I saw somewhere with SBF le- lost like a valuation. It wasn't real money from 16 billion dollars overnight. Well, having 20 million in the bank or having a penthouse for 40 million is still very good, right? But then you think mm-hmm. about the people who did this with unemployment funds and maybe it took them longer to get or, you know a job, or maybe they now have been laid off, or maybe The people in the Bahamas, like you mentioned before, the people who thought, oh, I got this great job at a company so I can buy a house for a little bit more than I had before, or I can send my kid to college or whatever else, because you're assuming that this paycheck is going to come. And then now who's going to come in after FDX, after all that they did in the Bahamas and all the infrastructure and everything else, what company is going to want to go in there with all of the kind of the stink around what happened the last time a company came and really propped up everyone there. So it's one thing for those of us on the sidelines to, and, and I say this is myself because I don't invest in the crypto market or haven't yet. And I think I'm grateful for that. I have to say, like, because I think a lot of people listening or thinking the same thing I was. And I love your honesty, right? Like if I'm propped up at the beach, I'm not asking any questions. Well, I would. But that's because I'm in fraud, right? Like that's because I've seen what happened. Right. That's because I know that there is no other phrase that is more true than if it sounds too good to be true, it is. And because I've seen it 8 million times at the same time, that also makes me cautious and I'm not going to have that huge uptick when everything's booming either so there's a trade off there
1: i think that that's a fair point but like if you're sitting i don't know like you're obviously one of the most influential people in your industry but if you're sitting beside one of your but like let's say another influential person if you're sitting beside that person if i'm sitting beside kevin o'leary i think i'm in good company mm-hmm. i think i'm with somebody that does their due diligence and that's where that's the only thing that's like Wait. okay it's not just a 30-year-old running around with money he's being backed by some of the most responsible what seems to be the most responsible investors who have invested in other projects that are doing really great jobs being due to diligence. So I think that's hard. Yeah. Like if It's just SPF running around with his three right, little right, friends. Yeah. Then you could be like, "He this has three arrow capital kind of written all over it, and we may not see these guys tomorrow. But when you have like, like, hey, man, if I get to throw around the ball with Tom Brady, like if Tom Brady must have more money than me, and he must be able to do more due diligence than I could ever afford to, and his lawyers are not going to ruin his rep, I think this is one of those things where it doesn't start off as like a Ponzi scheme. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, think I don't
0: what, think that think was what happens was in intention. these cases. Right. At first,
1: I think what happens in these cases, you see it like, okay, you have a little bit of money, you use that money to bring in like the investors, then you see the investors, hey, like I can use even more money to bring in Tom Brady, that's going to bring in more investors. I think you you get to keep on going down the line where hey, if I do even more, I can get even more. I think you lose sight of like, why am I even doing more but like you're you know that you know, when everyone's hailing you. You end up on the magazines, I think like you lose sight of where you even started at some point.
0: Yeah. The only thing, counterpoint I would say to that, and I want I know we need to keep moving this train along, but the counterpoint I would say to that though is 10 million to Kevin O'Leary is nothing. Right. So yeah, he's investing his money, but he's gonna be fine if that goes belly up. But the fact I think actually it's more shame on him for going on all those podcasts and making it seem like he cared so much about crypto compliance and he cared so much about governance and and policies and you know, making sure that you're seeing audited financials and you know, he waited and all of that. So he's making other people who don't have just a spare ten million dollars laying around that they can lose and be fine, think, Oh, I can put my you know you know, 200 bucks in or $10,000 savings account or whatever in, and he's doing it. So it's a smart investment. I think that's where it gets really tricky, but you know.
1: I think that's where I still believe he actually does care about this. I think what would be really interesting for your audience is the fraud of what happened. Yes, so that's when, what I want to dive
0: into. Yes, When,
1: when they froze all the, the withdrawals, it froze internal transfers. So if you have a balance of $100,000, you cannot just transfer it out of a... F- you can just transfer it to anybody else. So what people realize is like Unless you're a uh, Bahamas resident right. or a bohemian. So what people realize is like, hey, I'm a bohemian. I could actually sell an NFT to somebody and then the funds could be transferred to me. And NFTs, you can set really whatever price you want. So people were setting like $2.5 million for a worthless NFT. And then outside of Bahamas, people could send the funds. They could transfer it by buying the NFT. And then I guess what happened is the Bahamas residents withdraws the funds, takes his little or her little piece and kicks it back to the person, which I think is such a fascinating loophole. Now they did stop it. I think the SEC in Bahamas jumped in. But man, and what I love about cryptos because if this was happening on a bank, you would never see that. No. But because of the transparency of the blockchain, you don't need to hire so many investigators and police and law enforcement. You have people that all they do is sit on Twitter and do this stuff for fun. And they were actually the people that noticed it and brought it to light. That's what I love about the crypto industry. Because if you're not doing something good, we don't have to always rely on law enforcement to get involved. Really, the FTX breakdown really came through Twitter, right? Obviously, the leaked documents and everything. But all of this happened with Twitter activity, the FUD and everything happened through Twitter. And then some lawyers in the U.S. are basically saying if some of those users attempted this circumvention, they could be getting involved in some, some kind of violations around bankruptcy law. Uh, We'll see how that turns out. But it's funny that they were allowed to withdraw funds in the Bahamas when most of the employees, including SBI, we're in the Bahamas and they all right. live there. Hmm. I think I saw reports from the Securities Commission saying, hey, we didn't tell them that they were like, we didn't leave that loophole open for them." But these are all alleged reports. Right. But basically millions of dollars were transacted from the Bahamas before the SEC. And
0: it was uh, like uh, within hours. Shares. And then to your point, the ne- I think that was on like Thursday or Friday. And then on Saturday when I woke up Pacific time, that was when I saw the news about the $600 million hack. And I'm always cautious when the word hack in a headline, because a lot of times it actually means account takeover. But I think in this case, and so I was like, is it a breach? Is it a hack? Is it actually, you know, because oftentimes the true meaning of a hack is somebody from outside gets into the network. But what it's like, because, and I'm really glad you pointed this out, because this is really where your wheelhouse is in the crypto investigations piece and being able to work with There's some brilliant companies out there that you know all about and if people want to know about them, they can ask you, but they allow people, just everyday people that aren't even in, they don't even have actual titles of a crypto investigator or anything like that to be able to investigate, be able to track where the money goes, right, in crypto. Whereas if it's behind the scenes in a bank, nobody's going to know where I transferred my funds.
1: Nobody would know. But
0: when it's crypto, there's a public record of that within the blockchain and people that have great skills and I know actually, I actually know the CISO of one of the companies that actually, or the guy who put on Twitter, hey, we know who the hacker is. And yeah, it's internal. And they haven't said who that is yet as of the time recording. But Nicholas Bercocco, when I was reading the article last night, I was like, I know Nick. He worked for Trust like a million years ago. And when I was at the at the Trade Association for Risk and Fraud and we did webinars together and stuff, very smart guy. So he's the one that used investigative techniques. You'll see it. There's also articles that you can find where it will share all of the different clues that make it seem like it was an internal thing. Like you said earlier, there's a lot of speculation that it is SBF himself, the CEO of all of FTX. There's also the CEO of FTX US. There's a lot of crazy things with the CEO of Alameda Research might be dating SBF. I mean, there's so much like palace intrigue that really has nothing to do with this podcast. I just geek out on those kinds of things. I love the gossip or the the dirt. But I think that it was such chaos so quickly and on saturday morning it was okay well the rest of the money that was in ftx that was on hold that couldn't go out to anyone else has now been liquidated and taken out and oh by the way don't go to the website don't go to the app because there might be malware and i still don't totally understand that piece think, if there really was that, yeah. or if you know that that piece i really
1: to get access to everything seems highly yes, unlikely. And does. the fact that, okay, like, I, it seems like the hackers are not going to, ha- if you have the money, you're not hanging around to do malware and <laughs> to stick around and see what else you can get. Like you're, you're taking it, you're going pretty quick. Yeah. It sounded like a smokescreen, everyone...
0: right? Like, oh no, we yeah. were hacked and there's malware everywhere. So don't go to our website. Don't even try to transfer money out. That felt like a smoke screen to me. After yeah, reading like all can the shut pieces. Down right? Yeah, yeah. Because you're gonna make people nervous and as you should, there's a lot of crazy malware, especially in Russia right now, that can do crazy things that talk about it on the podcast all the time about logins and session data and all that stuff. But it's a good way to I get think people the last scared. Piece is that.
1: Yeah, if we remember back when Celsius went under, although it's alleged that mm-hmm. their main, the three top people took out about fifty million dollars while the customers couldn't withdraw. So you always see things like that. You're know, like, hmm, like might be a legend. We don't know exactly why, but it just seems too coincidental that you're telling everyone the, the money is fine and, and nobody can actually access their money but you and the rest of the. Oops! in your penthouse right well in
0: saying there was a hack is kind of like the 2022 equivalent of oh the house burned down or oh the bank burned down and all the money yeah. burned in with it like oh shoot we can't give it to you because all the cash in our vault was burnt down that's my assumption just based on the clues, but again, I think you've said this before. But there's going to be so many things that we'll see in hindsight, right? Like when the Netflix documentary is is made, well, I think it's going to probably be a pretty big one because isn't there an author that's actually been working with SBF? And it's the same. I mean, this guy seems to be in the right place at the right time at all times. It's the guy who wrote Moneyball. Am I right about that?
1: Yeah, I, I just read about that recently. I'm like, oh, like, and then sometimes it almost feels like. That they're adding a little bit of more drama right. to it. Because like, remember, the if they sell the series, it's not going, it may not go to the customers' money. It may go right into their wallets. So right. Sometimes, you know. Oh, that's true, right? Yeah, SPF cryptic,
0: can make money off of selling the rights. Hopefully that's not the case, though, with the bankruptcy. But
1: Yeah, the cryptic Twitter message and like it's just like i think sometimes like i feel like this is what we've created this is the kind of attention that we like so we can't be upset now that we're living through it but yeah there was an author following him around
0: michael lewis yeah
1: there's a lot of people going to be making a lot of money except for the customers mm-hmm. and, and you know, the bahamas yeah them. The yeah. maybe we
0: all need to like plan a i don't know an anti-frog conference in the bahamas to celebrate you know to be able to support the community i like that idea i mean also selfishly i have snow on the ground right now so i'm thinking warm weather sounds great
1: <laughs> it would be nice like one of these decentralized autonomous organizations these DAOs that like buy up that i like try to buy the constitution if they just bought that 40 million dollar property and just let you know whoever invested in it just kind of run around <laughs> For the next few years, I would I would love to see it. It's kind of like when you see these investigators like buying like Page. I think mm. I don't know if that's a big on your fraud. Oh speed, yeah. But when they buy the headquarters of Backpage and that's where they put their operations, it's just like a when you're spitting on the illicit actors. Mm-hmm. Kind of. I, I love that.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a big middle finger to the people who you know were yeah, doing bad exactly. things. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, well, so what? This is going to be kind of production territory. But what's next? Like, what do you think for crypto? For just All of it, I mean, obviously people are asking where are the regulators now, but what do you, and this is just purely speculation with a lot of education and expertise behind it, but what are you thinking is going to happen next?
1: The regulators are here. Like the regulators are in crypto. Law enforcement's pretty active with criminal. They're, they're not going to be able to walk away from this, and they're not going to get dinged by this. That, first of all, everyone thinks they're not regulated, they're not going to be able to touch. Trust me, there's n- nothing I'd be scared of more than the SEC and any other U.S. regulators with their extra, <laughs> their extra territorial reach. Is one thing that I've learned in the course of my days. I think what's next is like we're going to start tapping on the doors of other crypto exchanges. I think everyone's going to be demanding to see what's under the hood. We've already seen on Twitter, and I, I don't even want to mention other exchanges names you do that's fine but you know people are already saying hey that's just that transaction looks suspicious we need to do like you're not going to be able to do anything if you're a crypto exchange without providing like a, a detailed statement mm-hmm. your PR team is going to be working overtime as it should be I think this is going to hurt the trust of the regulators it's going to hurt the trust of investors mm-hmm. but I think it's almost like we needed we needed this we were getting high off of our own supply mm-hmm. for a lack of a better word the NFT market was hot crypto's hot tech's hot mm-hmm. the investments hot and we went through what 12 years of like financial growth like we were bound for a recession i don't know why anyone's shocked many people were calling it out two three years ago but i think because of the pandemic we saw a lot more money flowing around yeah when you're printing money i'm not just talking about FTT tokens so (laughs) with the U.S. government. It's easy when you can print the money.
0: Don't even get me started on all that fraud. And, well, I mean, you have, right? I mean, I'm sure there's several episodes where I was talking about it because I was working with a couple of organizations in the background, some unofficially, some officially, when that was happening. Or I spent a good amount of my time trying to contact people in governments at that time saying, you guys are getting robbed blind. And, I mean, one of the states all but told me to F off. And it was like oh, okay, I'm not trying to sell you anything. And I said that, like, in fact, actually I'm telling you that there are banks that have contacted me that have said, hey, we've identified this as fraudulent funds. We just want to get this back to the state. Like I was trying to give you money. Sorry, like opening up old wounds, obviously. But you're right. Like there's been such a free flowing of money. We should have probably had a recession a couple of years ago with not even if the pandemic hadn't happened, but especially with the pandemic, but then all of these things happening. And I think it's just crazy to live in it because every day is a new you know, new piece of the puzzle, a new thing. And it's like, well, what's next? And I think you're right. The trust of crypto has been impacted. I mean, the trust of online social media platforms have also been impacted because of Twitter. So there's a lot of trust there, but you're, and you're absolutely right too, that the regulators are there. I know that there's been reports that there are investigators that are, are watching SBF, like his personhood right making sure he doesn't leave the bahamas yeah. or somewhere that doesn't have an extradition treaty i think that's been discussed but i can appreciate that you don't want to say any of the other exchanges i kind of already did on tuesday's episode hey so i'll mention that all this stuff we talked about with celebrities and everything else it's easy to look at other exchanges and go huh What other exchanges have bought up a large sports stadium? Well, there's a sports stadium called crypto.com. So and people with their money in there are like, hey, we want to make sure that you have that too. And they're going to hold them accountable. And they're not necessarily saying that they don't have any money there. They're just saying, hey, we're now realizing that you guys aren't as safe as banks and that maybe we can't just take your word for it. So we'll go ahead and we're just we're just going to ask a few more questions right we're just going to we just need to know a little bit more well, Stephen, I obviously could talk to you all day and part of me wants to, but this has been such a good mm-hmm. conversation.
1: Is there anything else that it. you
0: want to add before we, final yeah, words. final words. Yeah,
1: first of all, I, lo- I love how educated you are and how much prep work oh, you do. You. I think people don't people don't realize the amount of work that goes into building a podcast and you have a fantastic team with Lucas and everyone else, but the amount of prep that you have to do to be conversationally dangerous as my oh, the one of the podcast hosts that I deal with. <laughs> I think that's the best word term to be used. Conversationally dangerous. Dangerous. I'm putting
0: that on my because,
1: resume. Well, I think education is key, yeah. right? I've done a lot of presentations for law enforcement, for regulators around the world. And I showed them my the analysis tool when I pull it out every now and then. And A lot of people are surprised. They're like, hey, they didn't know that crypto was just transparent. They don't know a lot of these things. And I think when you're getting all your education from crypto Twitter or from Instagram or from influencers, you don't want to not get any information and, be, you know, uninformed. You don't want to get just your information by certain sources and be misinformed. Mm. So I think everyone needs to take a deep dive. This technology is fantastic. We're seeing it right now that we're having people that sit at home in their basement are able to identify some of the biggest frauds in the world without leaving their house. So we're seeing the power of the transparency, both good and bad. But this is something that everyone needs to get educated on. With NFTs, they're not going to go away. They're just, we went, like, I remember, like, the fact that I can, like, get on an airplane, With my phone and somebody like scanning a barcode is like, I think we're around the same age. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're used to, you know, changing the channel with a box that was actually attached to the TV. And that just shows you how old I am, like pressing the 13 buttons that you had. So I didn't even have cable, so we didn't
0: have a box (laughs) my... (laughs) <laughs> we had antenna and like but four
1: channels <laughs> <laughs> i think companies and obviously i do educate people so obviously i'm a trader yeah. i'm like hey we need more education but so, just for me like there's other qualified people in this including yourself in this podcast people need to get more educated about crypto and then the crypto companies need to do a better job of marketing with compliance mm. i help so many companies with their marketing and they never want to lead with compliance but now everybody's leading with compliance look at yeah. our audit. look <laughs> at our reserves and i'm like that's what I've been telling you guys to lead with before because you're going to make yourself more attractive to investors. You're going to make yourself more attractive to regulators. And that is a long term business model. And I think now we see, now it's great because now we see. Getting Giselle and Tom isn't the end all be all for your business. So we don't have to work towards that anymore. Mm -hmm. That's not the finish line for us anymore. We don't have to get our name in big red lights and big blue lights on the top of Arena. So now we can go back to fundamentals. It's like, hey, let's build a sustainable business that can, when the next bull run comes, we're ready, set, go. And we've already spoken about compliance. And that's why I think companies reach out to me most now is like, We think we have a good tool or we think we have a good compliance team, but nobody speaks compliance or marketing in our organization. (laughs) They just do tech stuff and product building. Can you help us with that? I think that's what most companies are going to need to do. Investors are going to be gun shy right now. And although you'll still see a lot of investment goes in, you're going to see that companies are going to be a lot more weary about even receiving investments. Because remember, if companies are investing and they go away, I'm not really sure what happens in that transaction as well. When the company that invested in you folds, yeah. it's probably not good on your books as well, but coming both ways, receiving and getting.
0: That's something that I talked a little bit about at the end of Tuesday's episode too, when I talked about Twitter, is that I feel like it's in, and this is just me from this 10,000 foot view, right? Or I sometimes call myself air support for the fraud fighters on the ground. So I get to see a little bit more. It sure seems like companies that are doing well right now are leading with trust. They're leading with compliance. They're leading with, I mean, this will always bother me. Credit card companies are leading with zero fraud liability. No. Of course, it bothers me because usually it's online transactions and the merchants are actually paying for that. But that's a whole other thing. But I do think that you're absolutely right. We'll see more marketing with compliance, more marketing with trust and safety for marketplaces and companies that have user-generated real-time content, we're going to see that because that is going to be more and more important to consumers after the Twitter debacle, after FTX, after all the other crypto things. I think crypto has done a good job in helping consumers realize, oh, there's no mayor of the internet. There's no one person who's saying like, oh, you have a good website, but do you actually have the product? Are you actually shipping it? Are you, do you actually have that money in the bank that if everybody wanted to withdraw and take it out, they'll have it. There's really no one out there that's doing that in all channels of online. And so I think people are starting to realize that. So if companies are smart, they'll be leading with their fraud teams, with their compliance teams, with their governance and policies. And yeah, maybe that was boring and unsexy before, but it's actually like revenge of the nerds over here is the way I'm looking at it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Coinbase is boring and unsexy too. And they're doing it just just fine. I think everyone's seeing that too. I think we're done with the pedal to the metal. Let's let's just build Mm slow and build properly. Because I think a lot of people lost a lot of money this year. Yeah. Because every, as you said, everything looked a little too good to be true. Mm -hmm. And as we said before, it's not like fraud, AML compliance. It's not a cost center anymore. We're seeing it's a revenue generator. I've never seen so many exchanges put out a proof of reserve because it's a marketing team now trying to get in on it. Like, hey, let's take advantage of this. And now, but like now, everyone's doing it. So like nobody's really believing probably anything, or everyone's seeing all the same thing. Whereas if had you been doing this for years, a crypto exchange here, Bit by. They published, I think, four of these. And that was a company invested by WonderFi and Kevron O'Leary. So that's how I know. It seems that these companies are taking this very seriously. I feel Canadian regulation, Canadian system feels a little bit tighter Mm. than some of the U.S. stuff when it comes to, just because I don't think we have so many exchanges. We have a a, small amount. It's a lot easier to rein all the big ones (laughs) in, I think.
0: Yeah, well, and yeah, reminder to everyone you're up in Canada. So that makes sense why you're paying attention to those as well. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation. And honestly, in thinking about like, I was just trying to think what were kind of the highlights I want to pull out for an audiogram for social media. And I don't know, like every part of this conversation was really fascinating. So, and I really appreciated the kind of the excuse or the emphasis for me to dive in and learn more about this story too because i i knew very little about it when i asked you to come on the podcast but absolutely i want to try to be conversationally dangerous i'm using that term forever now awesome. trademark that for you but yeah you know i just i think that the other thing i'll say is that i do know and we talked about this in the last podcast you were on there are a lot of people in traditional e-commerce fraud prevention that want to be in crypto and they want to be crypto investigators and they want to do fraud prevention like Rob McCall and they want or Matt Vega, or they want to do compliance like you did for another exchange. And so what are just a couple of quick tips you'd give them? Obviously, I'd say if they want more, go back and listen to the first episode you were in, but obviously probably dive into this story, follow people that are doing investigations, like where, where should they start?
1: Yeah, I think LinkedIn is a great place, especially for crypto investigators. Definitely, obviously, I offer training, and that's all obviously helpful to get certified. Yes. Tra- just so you get understanding of the tools, especially. That's really the only reason I like the training, because you understand the fundamentals and tools. Everyone's taking a hit now. So if you're not working, you have the opportunity to Reach out to these companies and maybe see if there's ways that you can help or spread your expertise. Or there's a lot of volunteer organizations that specialize in crypto investigations that are desperately looking for volunteers on a regular basis. So these are all opportunities, but I've met so many great people since the time I've been on the show that have come through you and I'm so grateful for them. They are definitely like the epitome of you They live and breathe the kind of help that you're in mentorship that you're giving to the industry. And a lot of them are just so great. I probably speak to more fraud people now on a regular basis basis than I do my own AML people because they're just really great people always sending me great articles and posts and engaging in a lot of the content and the webinars and other sessions that I do and I just really enjoy
0: I love that of course it's kind of like when someone tells you that you have a good kid like you know you think that you do I've always thought that my audience and my fraud people are just like salt of the earth incredible humans but it's always great to hear it from someone who's you know, not necessarily totally outside, but related enough where you know maybe you wouldn't have known them before. And I I love seeing a lot of my regular listeners and people that I really enjoy talking to and working with, commenting and interacting on your LinkedIn content. It's so fun. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I wonder that. if they know each other because of the podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah, like even like the ones that stick out like Meredith, yes. Clear, Austin, Harris. It's like, and I love to see them create their own yes. things in their posts. Just Me too. We're all in the same realm, man. Hopefully you can make it we're having a session at the end of the month for content creators so i'll send you a link oh, cool. and maybe you can come pass by and educate people on one how to make content b how to make some money doing the content is always helpful i think everyone.
0: <laughs> i would be happy to and i will make sure to put a link to your linkedin in the show notes in the show description as i do and then as well as a link to your site and your next upcoming training so people can get awesome. involved but thank you so much for your time you. and this was by far the best conversation i've had today or this Greece, week
1: i'm dying of sweat
0: i well i didn't mean to make you work a, up a sweat but have a great rest of the day thanks so much